So, A.W. Pink, uh, he's a famous preacher from about a hundred years ago or more. Uh, and he once said that for the Christian to keep his heart means for him to pay close attention to the direction in which his affections are moving. To discover whether the things of this world are gaining a firmer and fuller hold over him, or whether they are increasingly losing their charm for him. And I think that's a great quote uh, as we come into uh, kind of the end of this series. Uh, I think it fits really well with the theme of everything we've talked about so far throughout this letter, uh, but also what we're going to be looking at today, which is kind of a, a, a summary or an answer to everything that uh, we've looked at up to this point. This letter has addressed a lot of tough topics, both for the believers in Philippi in the first century and for us today. We've been forced to talk about things like our conduct and behavior as Christians, the importance of unity as a church, humility, not fighting or grumbling, the importance of letting God change you, and the fact that compared to everything that we have in Jesus, everything else in life is worthless. And then finally, last week, we were forced to ask ourselves, in light of all this, what is it that we're truly pursuing in our lives? What are we putting all of our energy and our time and money into. And this week is a reminder that we need to be mindful of what is in our hearts and minds because that will play a big part in what comes out of our lives as well, or the fruit of our lives. And in a way, it kind of is an answer to everything we've learned about so far. If we don't do this, we can't accomplish the rest. And I struggled to kind of summarize this whole passage today into one main thought, because there's a lot of thoughts in here. It's, it's kind of coming to this summary section, but kind of what I came up with was that we need to guard our hearts. So today we're going to be looking at Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9, and I'm reading from the International Version. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom you, who, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. And I'm going to butcher these names. I plead with... Euodia, and I plead with Sintish, I think, uh, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put in practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So, I kind of brought this up in the first couple sermons, but throughout this series, you probably noticed on your own that there's been hints of some kind of conflict or disunity among the congregation in Philippi. Uh, they, they had a ton going for them. Uh, Paul saw them very highly, they were his close friends, but there were some issues going on. And this passage presents 
really the only tangible evidence we have of what the problem might have been, but even here, it's very vague. It doesn't really give us a lot to go on, so we just don't know. But let's start going through this passage, uh, starting in verse 1. Um, and in verse 1, you may have noticed that Paul uses two adjectives to describe the Philippian believers, and I want to talk about those for a minute. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, and he calls them his joy and his crown. Now, of course, we know that joy is not an uncommon theme in Philippians. Uh, when I first said to Sherilyn, actually, that I was going to preach on Philippians, that was the very first thing she said, joy. And it's not something I've talked about a lot through this series. Uh, I, I guess it's one of those things that I know that whenever you think of Philippians, the first thing you think of is joy. So I don't want to tell you about the things you know about Philippians. I want to talk about the things you don't know. And, but I want to talk about joy here. Because in all the other instances of joy in Philippians, it's, it's talking about a joy found in the Lord. But what Paul is saying here is that the church in Philippi is his joy. And of course, he doesn't mean that they replace or are better than the joy that's found in the Lord, but his life is better because he knows them. So this is a really big statement. It kind of goes back to that first part when we saw how much Paul loved these people in Philippi. And then he calls them his crown. And the imagery around the crown speaks both to the fact that they were a symbol of Paul's success as a servant of Jesus and the honor that he has to have been the means of founding such a church. So he makes these really passionate statements before he comes into this uh, big section of exhortation. And then he says, Stand firm in the Lord in this way, be your friends. So that stand firm word, it has military origins in Greek, and there's a couple places where he uses these kind of military phrases in this passage. And the literal translation is to be firmly committed in conviction or belief. So the church was not to be weakened by disunity, turmoil, or incorrect values. It was to stand together to accomplish God's will. And then we come to this part with these two names again. Uh, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Sintish, and I'm probably saying that one wrong, um, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the name of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So these, um, Paul refers to them as women. They are female Greek names. Um, there's a number of inscriptions that have been found in Philippi that date from that period that suggest that outside of Christianity, women were heavily involved in the city's religious activities. So um, as Paul kind of, whenever he comes to a community, he, he goes to where um, people are at. It makes sense that these women from this congregation were helping with this uh, church planting in Philippi. Uh, just like in Rome, you know, he's talking and referring to these, uh, all these temples to gods with no name. Uh, he he kind of goes where people are at because that's where they need to be found. So we don't know exactly what their role was, but we know that in some capacity they were serving with Paul when he was there. Now, like I said, this kind of sheds a little bit of light on this division problem. Uh, and all through the letters, Paul's talking about how to address division, but he doesn't really talk about what the problem is. And he still doesn't hear. All we can really learn is a little bit about the nature of the problem going on. 
So we can tell from this passage that these two women were in disagreement. We don't know what it was they disagreed about. On one hand, this was in a prominent place in this section, so that suggests that this problem had significance, and if it was left to fester, it could divide the church in two. So clearly it was more than just a small disagreement, or else Paul wouldn't have really even brought it up other than a passing mention. But on the other hand, it occurs near the end of the letter, and is handled in a relatively soft manner. So Paul clearly has faith in these two women, to, and the church leaders to correct this problem. If they need help, then people will come in to help. But he has faith that this problem can be resolved. And what's interesting here is this reference to a, to, a true companion. Um, we have no idea who this is. Uh, this letter wasn't written to a specific person. It was written to all the church. If you remember the bishops, those who served, the deacons, uh, at the beginning of the letter. So we don't know who this is. But they would have known, is kind of the idea, since it's written to everybody, they would have known who the true companion was of Paul. Some have suggested that this Greek word for true companion is actually someone's name, um, because a lot of names were things that meant things. So like, um, my name, Stephen, actually means crown or wreath in Greek. So when he says my joy and crown, you could say that was my joy and Stephen, but that's not what he meant. And so that's kind of the point here is, it could be someone's name, but probably it's not. It's probably my true companion. Just like it's not my joy and Stephen, it's probably not a specific person. At the end of the day, all we can really do to um, figure this out is guess as to who this is. Uh, we know that it's someone Paul saw as an associate of his. And they must have been prominent enough in the church that everyone would have known who he was referring to just by saying my true companion. So it must have been fairly obvious. Uh, so because of this, our best guess is that it was probably a minister or a bishop in the church. Verses 4 to 7, and this is kind of where we get into the, the meat and focus of today. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this is, this passage, this section here, is the beginning of a list of three imperatives, uh, or commands, is what we would call them in English. And it's followed by one indicative, or promise in English, for those who listen or follow. So if you do these three things, then you will have this one thing, this promise, um, and that will be the result. So the first imperative or command is to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. I might have said this before, but uh, one thing you should be aware of when studying scripture is that repetition signifies importance. If something is repeated, especially immediately after it is first said, then you need to stop and slow down and read what it is they're saying because it's important. The author is saying this is important. And that is the case here, to rejoice. Their joy was to be in the Lord, and it was to be unchanging. And they should always find joy in the Lord, regardless of what was going on in their own lives. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 says, Rejoice always. Pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will 
for you in Christ Jesus. And I just want to say that, you know, sometimes we take what's in a passage and we directly apply it to our lives um, as if it was written specifically for us. And in some cases you can do that, but I think we need to stop and recognize that we don't understand what this was really about for them. It sounds simple, rejoice. But we don't have the same life experiences they do. I mean, sure, we have bad days. Often things don't go the way we like. Our plans don't work out, or we may even suffer or have loss in our lives. But in the first centuries of the church, Christians were being put to death for their faith. And Christians in the first century, they didn't just quickly execute you. I'm just looking around to make sure there's no kids in the church still. Um, I don't see any. I, I do think it's important for us to recognize our past as a church. And I think it's important to recognize what they were experiencing. And when Paul wrote this letter, Rome was ruled by an emperor named Nero. And you might have heard of him before. He, he's the one that lit Rome on fire and then historically fiddled while it burned and then blamed the Christians for it. So when we hear that you know, Christians used to be put to death for their faith, we just picture like a quick death. But that was not the case most often. He used to put Christians on stakes, cover them in oil, and light them on fire to light the walkways around his palace. He was the one who began the practice of taking Christians to the Colosseums, covering them in the skins of dead animals, and then letting loose lions that had been starved to tear them to shreds in front of a cheering crowd. They didn't have movie theaters back then, so that was what people used to pay for on a Saturday for entertainment. So, I'm saying this because I want you to understand that when he says rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, it does not mean the same thing for us that it did for them. Very different life circumstances. But they still learned to do it. They still got it. Because you see, it is the privilege of Christians to rejoice in the Lord no matter what is going on in our lives. Because we are not rejoicing in our circumstances. We are rejoicing in the fact that there is a God and Savior. That everything else in our life can change, but He never does. There is not a moment in life when you cannot find joy in the character law, and promises of God. So that's the first imperative or command is to rejoice. The second one is to be gentle. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And, and there's some debate about this phrase, gentleness, uh, when you're studying the Bible. Uh, some people disagree as to whether it should be gentleness or moderation. Depending on your translation of the Bible, you might have either one. Uh, where this comes from, you know, you kind of wonder how people can be in such disagreement about things like words. Um, when you translate from other languages to English, there's not always a perfect equivalent in the English language for the word that they have. Their word might refer to two or three different things that we don't have one equivalent for. So I would argue that both have aspects in this word of what Paul's saying. So moderation would refer to a restraint on passion, a general soberness of living, being free from excess. And then gentleness, and I kind of prefer this translation just because it contains more of the thought behind the word, is considerate and lenient. 
The root of the problem here, like I said, is that not every Greek word has a perfect equivalent. Uh, and, and this word contains an element of selflessness to it, uh, which is why I prefer gentleness. And a better translation, I think, would be fair-mindedness or graciousness. And the translation of that Greek word is the attitude of a person who is charitable towards the faults of others and merciful in their judgments of their failings because they take their whole situation into their reckoning. So that's the second imperative or command. The third one is to not be anxious. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And I kind of want to make sure that you understand what he really means here, because anxiety is, of course, a huge topic in our society, and a lot of people suffer from it. I want to be careful not to belittle anxiety. I want to make sure you understand exactly what he's talking about here and what he means when he says anxiety in this passage. So Jesus speaks about anxiety in the Great Commission. In Matthew 6, 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? So you'll probably notice here that this is not the same as our modern understanding of chronic anxiety. He's not talking about that. He's talking about unproductive worrying. If you suffer from chronic anxiety, yes, pray, for sure, but also seek medical help from professionals because there is help to be found there. But if you're worrying about how you're going to pay your bills or what life will bring next, pray and give it to God. That's what he's talking about. And for them, of course, it's, am I going to be, or is my family going to be tomorrow taken and thrown to lions or put on a stake and lit on fire? And God's saying, don't worry about this stuff. Give it to me. Matthew 6, 31-34 says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And I feel like that last verse is kind of my life motto because there's always so many things that can go wrong in life. I don't want to worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. I've got enough trouble to figure out today. <laughs> I think that's a good motto for life. You may know the hymn, His Eyes on the Sparrow. That might be one that you are familiar with. This hymn actually comes from this chapter in Matthew 6. Because God makes sure that the birds have enough food to eat. And he cares much more about you and I than he does about birds. Don't worry, he will take care of you. Pray and surrender your worry to him. And then the third indicative or promise, or no, the, the indicative or promise as a result of those three things is that you will have peace. Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So if you do these three things, if you rejoice in the Lord, live a gentle life with moderation, and give your worries to God, you will experience peace. And it's not just any peace. First of all, it's a divine peace. It comes from God. And it particularly refers to the peace that is felt when we have no anxious concern about the supply of our needs, when we go about our lives confidently 
and commit everything, including worry, into his hands. And I want to be clear here that there is a difference between feeling peace about our needs being met because we trust God to meet them, and feeling a peace about our needs being met because we trust ourselves to meet them. That is not a peace from God, and it will disappear as soon as your situation changes. The second thing about this peace is that it transcends or passes all understanding. So by our own human reason, it does not make sense. It is the highest possible kind of peace. We will feel peace in moments when perhaps we logically should not feel at peace. But we will still feel it. We will still experience it. You think about those first century Christians who, you know, it's not just that they were scared of experiencing those things I described. They were watching their family and friends go through those things. But Paul says, if you trust me, if you do all these things, you will still feel peace. Third, and this is kind of where I focused everything in on today, it's what I want you to remember and take away, is that this peace will guard your hearts and minds. And this is the second military metaphor. The peace of God will keep guard over you like a soldier. It will garrison and protect your hearts and minds from stress and worry. While the peace is from God, which means the protection is from God, he says that we bring it about by doing those three things. If you do these three things, you will receive this peace that will guard you. Then verses 8 through 9 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. These final verses have a very clear, definite structure to them. There's two lists, and they're each completed with a verb or a call to action. So the first one revolves around Christian thought, and it's a list of seven qualities that should characterize Christians and their thoughts. The first is being truthful or dependable being noble, worthy of respect, or honorable. And that word is used of church leaders often in the New Testament. That's what's used to describe elders and deacons. Right, which is normally translated as just or fair. Pure or holy in relation to God. Lovely. This is the only place this word is used in the New Testament. And the fundamental meaning is that which calls out love. Admirable or of good repute. This is also the only place this is used in the New Testament, and it means anything that is not likely to offend. And then finally, excellent or praiseworthy, and this refers to moral excellence. So this first list, these characteristics of Christian thought, if we fill our minds with them, and it will unite the church, and it will present a good testimony to the world around us. And the verb or the call of action for this list is to think about such things or meditate on these things. And then the second list is the Christian practice. It's a list of three things that should characterize the practice of the Christians in Philippi and their actions. And it's all about what they've gotten from Paul. So this is going back to that imitation theme. Whatever you have from Paul, learn from him, receive from him, and heard or seen from him. And the verb or the call to action is to put it into practice. So again, that theme of imitation, imitate godly examples. It predominates. 
And the result of following these two lists that should characterize our thought and action is in verse 9. And the God of peace will be with you. So if you do the first three things, you will experience the peace of God. If you meditate on the things that Christians should meditate on, if you think about these things and do the things that you've been given as an example, God will be with you. So like I said at the beginning of this passage, uh, this passage is sort of a summation of the entire letter. It's, it's the answer to all the problems and the calls to action that came before this. Because we're all people. You know, we're all humans. We have sinful minds and natures. And it's, it's easy to just say, do this thing. But it's hard to actually do it sometimes. And so this is kind of the answer to how to experience the peace of God, to be at peace about the circumstances in your life, and for God to be with you, to do these things. So what should we take away from this? Next Sunday is the last week of the Philippians study. And so we're kind of coming into the end of this. So not just what should you take away today, but what should we begin to be thinking about as the big takeaway for this whole study? The entire call throughout the letter, the whole however many weeks we've been doing this, can be summarized in chapter 1, verses 9 to 11 of Philippians. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What you should take away from this week is that primarily we achieve this goal only if we guard our hearts through following the guiding principles Paul covered in this week's passage. Of course, you should also take away from this passage that we don't really do the guarding of our hearts. God does. But our actions and our thoughts bring about that peace that leads to our hearts being guarded. So what should you take away from all this? How should we, therefore, be guarding our hearts or working towards the guarding of our hearts? First, guard your hearts by living in unity. It's always easy to find something to disagree about. And, and you know what? I think life would actually be pretty boring if everyone disagreed about everything anyways. Like, we'd never care about anything. Everyone would just agree, and then we'd just do it, and it'd be kind of boring. Uh, and, and we're allowed to disagree, too. But when we do disagree, we need to be very, very careful about how we conduct ourselves. Galatians 5, 14-15 says, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, Watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So we need to remember to daily put aside the way we used to live, the way that the world still lives. We can't live like that anymore. We have to live like Jesus did, in humility. We are allowed to disagree. And there's lots of examples in the New Testament of just that, people disagreeing. But we are to work together to solve our differences. Paul called these two women, Euodia and Sintish to be of the same mind, to resolve their differences, and we must do the same. 2 Corinthians 13.11, and just to be clear, they disagreed about lots in the Corinthian church. 
um, Paul says this to them. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. We need to guard our hearts from falling for petty arguments. We need to live in unity, being of one mind and living in peace. The second thing is that we need to guard our hearts by surrendering worry. Because we are very good worriers. What will I do if this happens? Or what will I do if this person does this thing? Or if this thing doesn't work out? Or what's going to happen next week? Like, will this actually get done in time? If we're worrying or anxious about every single thing in our lives, we'll go crazy. Paul tells us in this passage, don't do that. Pray. Give it to God. And he says that if you do that, you will be filled with his peace, which passes all understanding. And really it comes down to trusting God to take care of you instead of yourself. A couple proverbs for you. First from three, chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him, and he will make your path straight. And that's one you usually measure, uh, memorize in summer, summer camp and Sunday school. And there's a reason that we do that. Because it's important, and because we're really bad at it. Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. God knows what is best for you and has your best interests at heart. If you trust him, you will experience his peace. And the third is to guard your heart by meditating. And this isn't a word we use often in church, but it's spoken of often in scripture. The truth is that whatever we are filling ourselves with, that is what will come out of us as well. That will be the fruit of our lives. Psalm 1, verse 1 to 3, the very start of the letter, or the book of Psalm. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaves do not wither. Whatever they do prospers. And then Psalm 19, 14 says, May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Paul says that we should think about and meditate on whatever is excellent and praiseworthy. You remember that list from before. Meditating on the things of God will guard your heart and bring you peace. So to conclude, if the Philippian church was to be successful in anything that Paul had asked of them at any point in this entire letter, they needed to guard their hearts and minds, because whatever you fill your life with is what will come out of your life as well. It is the fruit that you will bear. And the same truth is true for us. So as we leave here today, I want to leave you with these thoughts. If we spend our days being angry about how we have been wronged, or going over past arguments in our head, we will never, ever get along. We will always be divided. If we spend our days stressed and worried about things that we have absolutely no control over, we will never get anything done. 
We will also never trust in God to take care of our needs. But if we do the hard work of resolving our differences and being unified, if we give our worries and stress to God in prayer, if we meditate on his word and on things that are excellent and praiseworthy, if we do these things, we will experience a peace that does not even make sense. A peace that passes all understanding. And that peace will guard our hearts and minds. That is no small task, but it is a noble task. And it is the task that we are called to. And it's my genuine hope that we will all be able to experience this peace, each and every one of us. Father God, I thank you for this day. I thank you that in such a crazy world, you do give us the promise of peace. If we will only let go and trust you. I just ask that you would guard our hearts and that you would guard our minds. And that you would give us the strength to follow all that you've called us to do so that we can be lights to the world around us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.